Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 394 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of our special Poetry Break series, the poets Lawrence Sale and our host Julia Copus discuss two favourite classic poems by Emily Dickinson, I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died and I Could Die to Know. Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copus, and joining me today is the poet, reviewer and translator, Lawrence Sale. Lawrence has written 13 books of poems. His Waking Dreams, New and Selected Poems, was published by Blood Axe Books in 2010 and received a Poetry Book Society special commendation. Besides his own books of poetry, he has edited a number of poetry anthologies, among them First and Always, Poems for Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, published by Faber in 1988. He's also written two books of essays and two memoirs, the most recent of which, Accidentals, is illustrated by his daughter Erica Sale and was published in December 2020. He has served on the management committee of the Society of Authors and also directed the Cheltenham Festival of Literature. He is the recipient of a Hawthornden Fellowship, an Arts Council Writers' Bursary and a Chumley Award and is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Lawrence, hello. Hello there. So today we're talking about a giant in the poetry world, Emily Dickinson. So Lawrence, tell us which Dickinson poem you've chosen today and why you've chosen it. Well, I think it was part of the specific part, if you like, of the general huge excitement I felt at discovering Emily Dickinson's work, which I did, um, I'm slightly ashamed to say, rather late on, only about 20 years ago. And a rather strange coincidence gave a particular angle to my particular liking for this poem. Uh, In the National Gallery, there's a wonderful painting uh, done about 400 years, almost exactly 400 years before Emily Dickinson wrote this poem. And um, it's of an unknown woman of the Hofer family, so about 1470, and um, she's holding a forget-me-not. And she has a hugely elaborate headdress, which the painter has rendered beautifully in exquisite detail. But two-thirds of the way back on this exquisite embroidered headdress, there is uh, a fly. And um, the fly has been painted with terrific attention to detail. It's said sometimes that maybe the painter was trying to suggest to the spectator that the fly had landed on the painting rather than was an integral part of it. And, of course, a fly, in terms of uh, artistic iconography and so on, was often used as as an emblem for either evil or mortality. So it was that, uh, the mortality bit, if you like, that um, I sort of was reminded of hugely when I first read the Emily Dickinson. What what a great way into the poem. Yes. Um, And has its appeal altered for you in any way since that first encounter? 
Well, um, no, but as with so many Emily Dickinson poems, I think the apparent artlessness mm. and um, the odd effect of the punctuation syntax, the, her wide use of dashes, mm. um, what are they? Mm. Are they hesitations? Um, are they pauses? Mm. Um, are they telling us like a musical score about the tempo? I don't know any other poet uh, who, when you read her, she... You almost seem to be reading the unedited movements of her mind, mm. her pauses for thought. No, absolutely. So it seems, I mean, the first line is extraordinary. Mm. I think we, we'll get on to discussing the poem in yeah. a moment, but before we do that, we should listen to it. The language is pretty straightforward, isn't it? But is there anything you think we should listen out for or anything that you want to flag up before we have a listen? Well, um, of course, one of the immediate questions is how do you read this aloud? Do you uh, read over the dashes? I don't myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another aspect of them, of course, is the the reader's breathing and breath and Mm -hmm. a poem about Mm -hmm. death rhyming with breath. There's that uh, phrase, Mm. isn't there, between the heaves of storm. Yes, wonderful. Which is um, something to listen out for because it's difficult to um, pick up maybe on a first reading. So that's in the fourth line there, isn't it? Between the heaves of storm. Well, would you read the poem for us? I'd be delighted to. I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away what portion of me be assignable, And then it was there interposed a fly with blue, uncertain, stumbling buzz between the light and me. And then the windows failed, and then I could not see to see. What I really liked about the way you read that was that you honoured the punctuation, the dashes, but still allowed us to hear the pulse of the poem underneath. We could hear that sort of ballad form, Mm. four beat, three beat, four beat, three beat, in the way you read. Usually people are either going, I heard a fly buzz when I died, (laughs) stillness in the room, or it's totally disjointed and you can't hear the underlying, what we're calling pulse. Yes. Um, So that was great. So... I think before we get down to the nitty gritty, would, mm. would you mind just sort of walking us through those four stanzas, uh, just very briefly in terms of content, in terms of what's going on? Yes. Well, I think the point that persists from the first line onward um, is the sense of what is heard, the auditory sense. I mean, there are two pulses, to use that word again, um, at work here, aren't there? There's the auditory and the visual. Yes. And they're beautifully played off against each other. So the first four lines are entirely to do with hearing what is heard, what is not heard, the stillness of silence, if you like, contrasted with the heaves of storm, mm. um, the, the noise of the fly buzzing. That's auditory. The second verse then changes doesn't it uh, or at least it introduces another element the eyes around mm-hmm. so here's the visual sense mm-hmm. and uh, then that is played off and turned against by return to, and breaths were gathering firm 
Um, so that's hearing and sight and a view, if you like. Again, astonishing, the dead or dying person uh, running a commentary on the about-to-be-mourners. Yes. Um, so the second stanza is sort of yeah. set in the room, isn't it? Yes. And uh, the mourners are sort of standing about. And as you say, the, the dying person is uh, commentating on. Um, I was listening to a mm. podcast as I drove down about death and dying. Yes. And there's some new research that's been done in China, I think. I think they have ascertained that the sense of hearing is the last thing to go. Even after most of your consciousness yes. have got, there's that consciousness yes. of sound. Yes, uh, that's not entirely new. Um, but I think this was mm. the first time they've actually asked dying people to have electric pads on their heads or sensors. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, uh-huh. And found it mm-hmm. to, so that to be true. confirmed it. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, sorry, I interrupted. So That's you were. Right. Inter- and then I'm an entirely new tack again in the third verse. I willed my keepsakes. Yes. Um, so um, this is essentially the dead person taking the measure not of other people in the room, but of herself. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there seems to me to be a, an underlying question. What am I in control of? What can I not oh, control? Oh, I completely yes. agree. Yes. So she's there sort of signing away her belongings. Yes. Um, signed away, what portion of me be assignable? I almost hear that as what portion of me be controllable. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I quite agree. Yeah. So, And it's really um, measuring the limitations of the human will, isn't it? Yes. And, and saying, um, I can only control this up to a point. So that, that begs the question, I suppose, what is the portion of her that isn't assignable? I suppose we could call it the soul or... Well, yes. Also, don't you think there's a sense of... Um, Signing away is there are two surrenders going on. There's a surrender of human ability to control their circumstances, but there's also the surrender to death, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's not quite contemptuous, but it's on the way, isn't it? Signed away, what portion of me be assignable? Mm-hmm. And as I read it, then in the last line of that third verse, the interposed of fly, we come full circle mm-hmm. back to the fly. It was Wonderful excursion. Yeah. So that doesn't the fly represent the circumstantial, the accidental, the beyond human control? Yes, yes, yes. As well as mortality. And it comes when the grievers or the mourners are expecting the arrival of the king. Yes. And right. instead... yes. They're interposed. Yes, I love I that. I love that word. Or inter- interposed. I was just yes. going to say, isn't it wonderful? Because yep. pose and poise, um, the dying on the whole are not quite as poised. And um, yep. I mean, if you're in pain, you shriek. You don't write a sonnet. Yes. If you're dying, <laughs> uh, you tend not to write beautiful slant rhyme and use words like interposed. So really, the first verse, um, the room, if you like, the poet's perception. The second verse, the embryo mourners. Uh, the third verse, uh, looking into her own feelings, mm-hmm. and then moving out again. And then that wonderful, and it's when we go back to the room, don't we? And we get a hint of the outside. Mm-hmm. And I love, uh, in the fi- final verse, the idea of the, the windows failing. I mean, there's a long-established yes. tradition of the eyes as the windows yes. of the soul. Yes. I so could do you, not see to see. So do you see, I mean, they could either be the windows in the room, uh, or, as you say, the, the dying person's eyes. Um, do you see one or the other? Or no, I like to see both. both. Yeah, but I, I also don't. You also think that um, the idea, in a way, almost in Congress, the idea of the windows failing. Yes. Uh, in the sense of windows in the room, and the yeah. idea of 
the failure of light to come in. Yeah, the, fantastic. The, I mean, this is this is Dylan Thomas, isn't it? The dying yeah. of the light. Um, yes, yes. So it yes. has that, and it's that ambivalence. That's a brilliant choice of word. And yeah. then, of course, coming around to the other meaning, I could not see to see. Yes. Both in terms of seeing with the eyes and seeing through the window. Yes. They're both an interior and an exterior view. Yes, and this is, I suppose, the suggestion of seeing as perception and then the the, the physical Yes, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah. Well, taking a step back from the Mm. poem and looking at these objects that you've mentioned, so we've got the fly, the room, the eyes and the breaths that are sort of more ethereal, the king and the fly, um, and the mourners standing around. That mention of the king... In line seven. Yes, what do you make of that? Well, because the the word is placed at the end of a line, isn't it? So it, mm. we know it's important, but then yes. that's it's not mentioned again at all. So it kind of draws attention to itself and then vanishes completely. Um, what do I make of it? I'm more interested in what you think of it, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I suppose she is talking about God, um, but also about expectation that people are expecting this grand moment and actually. What comes instead is this uncertain, stumbling, buzzing fly. Yes, I mean, the king, uh, as, as I read it, um, it's gain, like so many other things. The Pope's not quite as simple as it appears. Mm. When the king be witnessed. Now, how do you read be witnessed? It mm. could mean when the truth of the king's existence is borne witness to by death. Mm-hmm. The king, as I read it, could be death itself, or indeed, as you were saying, uh, God. Mm-hmm. And given um, her, her background and her history, it almost certainly is that. But I don't think there's absolute certainty. But the king, one thing that's certain about the king is that by definition, he exercises control. Yes. He's a totality. Yes. And yes. there's a, perhaps an interesting um, playoff between the king and the fly, the fly representing the human condition, coincidence, fate. And the uncertainty. Um, and uncertainty, indeed. Yeah. The yeah. circumstantial, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, rather as, you know, when you were saying to me, which of the reading, if you like, of the word windows do I like? And I greedily said, I'd like both, please. And me I feel too. rather the same <laughs> with the king. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, think of the number of Dickinson poems that have a he, a man, a king, God, um, often glancingly, often referred to and then sheared away from. Mm. I'd love to know whether she ever thought this was slightly amusing. In other words, you know. I think there's definitely humour. Yes, yes, I think so. Yes, yes. yes. So just to bring in a tiny Mm. bit of context, when I was thinking about this podcast, I had a vague memory that she sort of wanted to commit to Christianity, but wasn't quite able Mm. to. And then I came across this letter about her thoughts on religion that she wrote in 1846. So she was born mm. in 1830, wasn't yes, she? So she yes, would have been early on. 15, yes. 16. So years before this poem was written in 1863. So she wrote to her friend, Abaya Root, who was a fully committed Christian. Mm. And she said, I feel that the world holds a predominant place in my affections. And she said that she couldn't fully commit to God for that reason. Um, so it seems to me that this poem is partly about where we place our attention um, mm-hmm. instead of being distracted by whether or not you believe in that sense. We might instead pay humble attention to these tiny, the moment-by-moment occurrences, even if the thing that appears is just a fly. Yes, you could imagine it being the work of a convinced agnostic. That's a very interesting um, suggestion, I think, that in a sense she 
doesn't evade the question, but it's, it's a kind of sort of token genuflection. Yes, because I think she agonised about her mm. relationship to God mm. and she didn't join the church in the end, but not out of defiance, just in order to sort of remain true to herself. So I think she's trying to get away from that agonising. Yes, and I suppose another aspect might be that there's an almost um, monastic um, dedication to the, to the long-term subject's um, death love, eternity, and uh, so on. And um, you would certainly say that she had a highly developed religious sense. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is not, of course, the same as belonging to a particular church, and I suppose therein lies the the difference. But um, she's not being prescriptive. She's not um, waiving something um, with the aggression of certainty at the reader, is she? She's inviting no. the reader to follow her in what may be her own uncertain stumbling um, mm, as mm. she considers and takes as touchstones death, love, immortality. Yeah, that affects uh, that she manages to get us to feel that we're following her thought through the poem is extraordinary given the fact that it is so tightly wrought, really. Yes. Um, so we, we get the sense of fluidity um, Along with this, as I said, it's in ballad meter with four beats, three beats all the way through. Yes, certainly, yeah. And she was brought up around hymns, wasn't she? She was saturated, really, with... The common measure, indeed, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, Could we, at this point, maybe say something about the rhyme as well? Yes, rhyme and repetition, which is never repetition, of course, because it's it's in a different place and it's mm. doing a slightly different job. But I mean, the number repeated was stillness. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air. Yeah. Air, of course, again links us with breath. Yes. Stillness with death. And the second and fourth lines yep. are rhyming, aren't they? Yes. But as you have said, they are usually half rhymes yes. or slant rhymes. Yes, That's, yes, so absolutely. Room, storm, firm, room. Until in the final verse, there is a, yeah. a strong rhyme, isn't there? Me and see. So there's a moment of rhyming clarity. Yes. And closer <laughs> to when we're still uh, at a moment of surrender. Yes. And the dash right at the end of the poem is sort of yes, quite. suggests that surrender, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. wonderful? Yes. Um, it, it opens out into what? Yeah. So again, as you say, you've got the definite full rhyme that you've uh, yes. pointed out, me and C. Yep. But with it, this <laughs> jumping off into nowhere with the, yes. with the dash. I wanted to look at one or two other things, like, for instance, in that same verse, the last verse, um, the extraordinary effect, I find, of um, uh, we've got there interposed a fly and we've sort of done, gone on a, a big excursion, but we've come back to the fly. And then with blue, yes, um, I find that there's a multiplicity of, of things that occur and enrich um, that very, very simple word. Mm. I mean, I think of the way in which the external is played off against the internal, the idea of the blue skies openness, the idea of blue eyes, mm-hmm, eyes, of course, mm-hmm. um, have their part here. And blue, of course, has quite a strong connection, doesn't it, with um, illness and disease, blue lips, uh, someone has a heart attack and yes, then yes, turns yes. blue. It's and there's the blue that, of religion as well, isn't there? Yes, it's indeed, Marian blue, mm-hmm. uh, yes, certainly, yes. And it's such a definite word. It's a, it's intriguing, isn't it, that placed there uh, at the beginning of a new verse, it's, it really is emphatic with blue. And the next and word capitalized is... Yes, well, capitalised. And the next word is uncertain. Yeah, after a dash. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that just strikes me is this sort of triple adjective that's given mm, mm. to the flight. Blue, uncertain, stumbling, in a poem where there are very few adjectives at all. Yes, quite. Yes. Um... 
Well, you asked right at the outset what was it that particularly appealed to me. And uh, I think one of the things that appeals to me about her work in general is the richness, the variety of interpretations, tones that can be put upon this uh, work. And I think partly it is just what you're saying, that it's not over-agitival. It it keeps a a flexibility and a sort of, not a looseness, because as we've discovered, it's very tightly structured. Um, But despite that, I mean, ironically, and it's rather in the same way, I think, that in this and many of her poems, the dashes, which you think ought to, and visually, look as though they might fragment the thing. Hopelessly, they actually don't. They just give me the impression of someone thinking on. Yes, Um, it's like they're leading you on. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. But the dashes, in a funny way, enable you to be part of the journey much more than separate sentences or attempts to enrich the language agitively or adverbally. Yes. Um, And do you think that perhaps the capitalisation gives a particular value, a particular depth, that wonderful phrase, the heaves of storm. Yeah. I mean, you have to slow down saying it, but the fact that the both heaves and storm are in capitals give them a kind of visual emphasis as well. But they don't stop you moving on. They don't. No, that's the magic of Emily it Dickinson. Is. Well, I, I just want to say one thing more. I want to ask you something, which is um, how do you account for the fact, and this has to just be part of her genius, that... Um, the first line, I heard a fly buzz when I died. No, she didn't. But certainly I find as a reader, I assent completely. I don't stop and think, oh, no, she didn't. You just think, oh, yeah, fine. So then what? I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah, an extra- you're waiting. Yes. To, and I think, yeah. I think it's partly, I mean, it's said with such authority, isn't it? Um, yes. So it's, it's partly the tone. Yes. It's, it's, it's unarguable with because she's yes, just quite. telling you, when I died, this yes. is what happened. Yes, quite. Yes. Um, there is this sort of iambic pulse in a lot of her poetry, di-da, 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 di-da. But in that first line that we're talking about, mm. you can't go, I heard a fly buzz when... You've mm. got to yeah. stress buzz as yes, well. Yes, exactly. And so it's almost like the, the fly is interposing itself rhythmically in that very first line. Yes. I heard a fly buzz <laughs> yes. when I died. Yes, quite right. Yes, um, I agree. Yes. She wants us to notice this fly, doesn't she? <laughs> yes, I, th- I think so, yes. Um, just to finish off, you've, you've sort of said that that last line lifts us out of the poem. I suppose it's about what it means to lose the physical capacity to see. Um, what do you make of it? Well, it's the that? only negative in the whole poem, isn't it? Yes. Um, I could not see to see. And it, in some sense, for me, completes that note of surrender. It links up in a strange way with um, with two things. Um, firstly, the that wonderful first line of the second verse, the eyes around had wrung them dry. Yeah, Zem- and I suppose that means wrung themselves well, dry. Well, it does. But it also uh, it echoes in my mind as, as people in grief wringing their hands. Yes, definitely. So got, yes. Again, we're noticing things that have more than one... Um, connection. Um, yes, and indeed that then leads on to the idea that they had somehow um, pulled themselves together for that last moment. So they had, they had in a sense, come to terms with, they had accepted that this was a deathbed scene. Mm. And it seems to me that that mm. runs out brilliantly at the end of the poem um, on more than one level again. And then the windows fail, as we've already suggested, the actual windows, uh, the uh, the windows of the eyes, the windows of the soul. Um, and then I could not see to see. That has, I suppose, what 
to honour her properly, one ought to call a provisional finality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I like it. <laughs> and, but also there's that note of um, almost, not, not sort of flippant, but almost sort of, look, I can still do this. I could not see to see. There's that, yeah. the tone there yes. lightens, doesn't it? Um, yes. yeah. But it is also the idea of the, the portions of her that are not assignable in the third verse. Yes. It's all, in a sense, come home to roost. But it's how brilliant to end that. I mean, you know... We have in our culture a, a, a lot of um, examples of resonant and would-be resonant last words. Yes. And uh, it plays into that kind of tradition, doesn't it? I could yeah. not say to yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yes. Um, yes. You know, it's wonderful. <laughs> and in an odd way, it doesn't destroy what has become a continuum. It continues the idea of process, which I think is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I think that is a good place on which to end this first part of the the podcast. Thank you very much for talking to us about one of your favourite poems, I Heard a Fly Buzz, When I Died by Emily Dickinson. So my choice of Emily Dickinson poem is I Could Die to Know. Um, and I chose it partly because there's a fly in it. It's quite a short poem, it's 12 lines. And I love the vividness of it. It feels like a slice of an actual day uh, back in 19th century New England. Um, the speaker is sitting or lying in her room, wondering if her beloved is treading past the house at this very moment. And just before we listen to the poem, I just wanted to point out something about the rhythm in, in that we talked about how... Um, regular a lot of Emily Dickinson's meter is in her poems. Um, in this poem, the rhythms are completely chaotic, and I think they echo the, the disturbed thoughts of the, uh, the speaker. So it's very far from that steady um, iambic pulse of the first poem that we looked at. And I think sounds even more than usually modern for that reason. Yes, I was going to say, I'm just very glad that, that you chose this poem because it's, it forms a fascinating a series of links and contrasts with the first poem. And like you're just saying, it looks chaotic. And it's actually, I mean, I was talking quite early on the other poem about the dashes. This has 21 dashes. Um, and it's, it, it, does, it does almost um, have a sense of the notebook about it. Um, yes. Here the dashes seem to, uh, one of the things they do anyway is to suggest a kind of breathlessness um, as the speaker is waiting but now that you have read your poem with the dashes in paying such careful attention to them I'm going to have to try and do the same <laughs> so I could die to know I could die to know tis a trifling knowledge newsboys salute the door carts joggle by morning's bold face stares in the window were but mine, the charter of the least fly. Houses hunch the house with their brick shoulders. Coals from a rolling load rattle, how near. To the very square, his foot is passing, possibly this moment, while I dream here. It's amazing. Um... 
So yeah, newsboys salute the door, line three. I mean, I was wondering whether they might actually be throwing the paper against the door, as you, you see in American films. Well, and interestingly enough, when that happens, the arm actually comes up. Oh, to yes. To salute position with the effort of throwing. Oh, yes, so that probably so, is it. She's just dying to know this, what she calls, trifling bit of knowledge. Um, and then you, you get this frustration in line six. Yes. She says, were but mine, the charter of the least flies. So, I What suppose, do you think she means by that? I think what she means is that even the least fly has, uh, I suppose, license to buzz around and to see freely and could buzz out of the house and see the beloved passing by if it wanted. So were but mine, if only I had that. Don't you think it's Lightened. also about the, yeah. um, the the fly has no difficulty in defining its territory? It's in control. It's back to that idea of, well, the chart, of course, of covenant. I link it up with the lines in the first poem about what would be a sign of I willed my yes. keepsakes. Yeah. Because it's, it's that same idea of what is within my control. power and control yeah. and what yeah. isn't. Yes, it does link up with what portion of me be assignable. Yeah. Uh, and then second stanza, the, the very obvious um, alliteration, those repeated ha huh sounds almost onomatopoeic, isn't it? Houses hunch the house. What a great line that is. It sounds so modern to me. Um, with their brick shoulders. So I see this really <laughs> physical <laughs> image of um, yes. almost a sense that she's feels overcrowded. Yes, overlooked. it's claustrophobic, isn't yeah. it, I think? Uh, yeah. uh, it has a sense of enclosure, doesn't it? It's, I suppose in point of view of sound, it goes rather well with um, between the heaves of storm, doesn't it? Yes. And um, there's that same sense of just the gesture you were making as you spoke yes. it, that gesture of the shoulders held in, the opposite to the openness of the newsboys, open-armed flinging yes, salute. of the paper. Yes, And, of course, heaves. There's that H sound again. Yes, which yes quite. Yes. She seems to use in those yes. circumstances. Um, there are lots of two syllables of equal weight. Bold face in line five, and the next line, charter of the least fly. So we call these spondies, don't we, um, in poetry? And yes. So these two syllables of equal length. There are more. There's in line eight, brick shoulders, but brick shoal. And then line nine, how near. And... They sound, when you notice them, like a footstep. Dun, dun. Mm -hmm. And they kind of lead up in line 10 to his foot, which really is a sort of emotional heart. And the H there is capitalised. Yes. His foot. Yes, I hadn't thought of that connection. What a, what a lovely idea. And it's, it's convincing too. Um, so instead of getting the whole person, we simply get his foot. And that in turn makes me think of um, touching the hem of his garment. Yes. I mean, there's the sense of the whole yeah. being represented by that part. It's almost as though the gaze of the person is um, humble and lowered and concentrate on the passage of the foot, which you've already said was, um, interestingly, was, was represented in the, the spondaic rhythms, yes. The syntax is very broken up, isn't it? Yes. But I suppose this, his foot is passing, that phrase is a conclusion. You, you could read a lot of the poem, the lines that come before that phrase in parenthesis almost. So I could die to know yes. how near his foot is passing. Yes. And rather as the um, first poem ran out with the almost dot, 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 the final yeah. dash of the onset of death. Yeah. Um, here, there's something not dissimilar going on. Um, yeah. It's creating the context within which this moment 
uh, is framed. Yes, and I also like that possibly, and this moment are placed on the same line together. Yes. So this moment is so uh, precise and absolute. Yes, quite. But it's paired with possibly. Yes. <laughs> the here, the very last word is capitalised. And I suppose we are supposed to read into that a contrast with not here, in other words, there, where his foot is. Yes. Where she would like to be, where the least fly has licence to go. Um, and there's something, isn't there, too, about her uncertainty or her um, hesitations played off against the, almost you think she's, she's slightly rude, morning's bold face stares in yeah, the window. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, and maybe uh, we can read into that as well, a contrast with her own lack of boldness. Yes, quite. And not going outside. Um, yes, and and also a contrast with the, the difference between the bold face staring in and her gaze that only just dare glimpse his foot. Yes, absolutely. And that last line that you picked up on, it's a slow line, isn't it? Because of the yes. monosyllables. It's impossible to read that line quickly, uh, especially if you take note of the dashes. So that really strikes up a contrast with the busy bustle of the outside world. Yes. Um, And, of course, this is um, another interesting contrast between the the two poems, I think, is that um, this is in the present tense. mm. Um, And it it, it makes all the difference. And there's so much cleverly aligned, isn't there, that what you described at the outset as as chaotic, yes, of course, that's Mm. how it reads. But at the same time, it's in an impressionistic way, a very good evocation of things as they happen. Yes. Um, This one looks at the interface between the outer world um, uh, and the implied uh, interior position of the poem. Yes, the here. Yeah, exactly. Well, I dream here. The other poem looks at the interface between um, the interior room and death. So it's a very interesting contrast. They're doing different things. And it's a tribute, I think, to the flexibility of her talent and the range of it that they manifest themselves in such different ways. They do. I mean, the, the difference in the rhythm is very striking, isn't yes. it? A lot of the um, first words in each line are stressed, which is unusual because hmm. in the first poem, I was going to say your poem, in the, in the uh, I Heard a Fly Buzz poem, hmm. you've got those typical da-da, da-da, so the first syllable is not stressed, I heard. And here we've got I is definitely stressed in the first line of this poem. Yes. Tis, uh, news, boys, carts. I think it adds to that chaotic kind of offbeat sense of the poem. It's a, it's a poem full of activity and physicality. You know, the newsboys, the carts, the houses, the lumps of coals from a rolling load. Um but also stillness. Yes. And the, and the most still thing in the poem, I suppose, is in the end, the speaker, while I dream here. Yes, in fact, I'm just, I had thought, I'm just looking at the, there are only two eyes, I think, in the whole poem, one at the, in the first line and one and in, in the, the last. last. Yes. So it's bookended by um, that first person but largely away from it. Yes, it seems to me a wonderful example of, of that facet of her work which uses uh, rhythm uh, and punctuation uh, almost like, as I mentioned earlier, as a, as a musical score. It actually, yes. she conducts the reader. Yes. Um, 
it, you can't get away from that. It's extraordinary, and it's very, it is very musical. It's very definite, and there's no uncertainty about that in her work no, at all. No, her directions are very precise, yes. aren't they? Yes, yeah. and I, I mean, as you said, it particularly comes home in a sense to roost in that the poise, the way in which uh, the orchestra is brought down to a, a still hush at the end is quite extraordinarily accomplished. But again, as you have noticed before, with with the simplest of words, her vocabulary, mm-hmm. I mean, the sense of the everyday here mm-hmm. is very straightforward, isn't it? And then the relationship between the here of the poet's position and all that is observed in a quite apparently objective, detached way from the outside. Yes, yeah. The there of the rest of the poem. Yes, yes. Um, interestingly, the auditory is experienced, isn't it? She can mm. hear all these things. A yes. lot of the visual is imagined. Yes, quite, yes. Um, which is, it's all a possibility, possibly, yes, exactly. this moment. Yes. Yeah. And it comes back again to that word control, doesn't it? Yes, um, yes. She she has supreme control over it. In yes, and it shows up particularly when, yeah. in a poem like this where... Um, I'm sorry, I was rather... No, 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 um, where, where, as you rightly say, that it, it, it is, if not chaotic, then there's a lot of looseness, there's a lot going on, quite daringly. And, uh, yes, uh, it does read much more like a contemporary poem from that point of view. But then the daring and the actually sort of calling the orchestra back of the ending, you know, yeah. it's just wonderful. Yes, there's a kind of ralentando, isn't yes, there? Yes, it is. Exactly. Slowing I, down. I knew there was a word for it. Yes, yes. yes. it is exactly that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can imagine someone reading this while I dream here. Yeah. You can imagine the, the, the poet looking up at the audience very slowly and smiling slightly. But also that ellipsis at the end, yes. the kind of launching yes. off into nothingness again. Yes, quite. Yeah. Lawrence, I think I could talk to you about Emily Dickinson for at least an entire day, <laughs> but we have to contain ourselves within uh, the half hour or so of this podcast. So can I just say thank you so much? It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely delightful. Thank you so much. The theme music for this podcast was performed on trumpet by James Copus. Thanks for listening. And that concludes episode 394, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 395, Lucy Flannery speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about internal monologues, writing comedy, and doubt versus chutzpah. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.